Welcome to Church Ahead, the weekly Christian podcast talking about big questions facing the future of church with Rev L all the way from the north of England. Episode 45, Cross Jesus. Is following Jesus a way of life or a way of death? We're looking this Lent at the notion that Jesus' death is the most important thing about him. And if we accept that, we're looking today at what that does to Jesus himself. Obviously Jesus was crucified, and so this dramatic end to his life story will always be an important part of his story. Crucifixion will feature in any serious account of Jesus' life. My question is, what does it do for Jesus when we emphasise his death as the most important thing about him? If this is the key thing that the church says about Jesus, how does that affect Jesus' followers? Does it make him more attractive to 21st century Europeans? Does it help us appreciate him? If Christianity is in some sense a personal relationship with Jesus then how does it affect this relationship? Any version of Christianity must be tested to see whether it helps ordinary people to embrace Jesus as their own, whether people are more likely to travel through life with Jesus or without him. Traditional Christians have grown up with a religion focused on Jesus' death. Many will take it for granted that dying was the most important thing Jesus ever did, and the most important thing we can say about him. Many great men have suffered horrible deaths, but we do not define their greatness in their death. So we're going to look at the lives of three other great men killed during the decade of their thirties. Come live with me and we will all the pleasures prove is my favourite poem by the wonderful poet Christopher Marlowe who was stabbed in the eye, probably in a London street tavern brawl. On a Saturday morning a couple of weeks ago, I was on a walking tour past the scene of this crime in Rotherhithe, south-east London, walking along the Thames. And as a Marlowe fan, I was looking forward to this bit of the tour. There's a monument photo in my guidebook, but I missed it. And when I realised my mistake ten minutes later, I couldn't be bothered to go back and find it. No. Although I did see a little funeral memorial in the churchyard at Deptford, where he's buried, that was enough. Marlowe's grisly end and the detail of where exactly on the Thames Riverside path it happened is not that important. His greatness is not in his violent end, but in his poetry. Now, I don't suggest that Marlowe's unsavoury end echoes the death of Jesus in any important way. Striking as the man's death is, he's generally remembered for some fine poetry. His gory death is part of the story of his life, but it does not define him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is regarded by many Christians as a martyr, having been executed in Flossenburg concentration camp in April 1945. This German Protestant pastor paid the price for resisting Nazi leadership with his own life. 
Now there are many parallels with the way Jesus' life was brought to an end. Bonhoeffer was hanged within a day of a dubious trial with no defence. The authorities had taken several steps to silence his message of protest, including bans on university teaching and closing a theological seminary. The tone was set early on when they pulled his radio broadcast against the newly elected Chancellor off the air, live and in mid-sentence. Bonhoeffer battled not only against secular powers, but religious leaders. Bishop Theodore Heckel ordered him not to try and speak for their denomination in London and later revoked his licence to teach in Berlin University, denouncing him as unpatriotic. And there are echoes of Jesus' conflict with both priestly and secular authority in the drama of his own death. There's historical witness to the dignity and bravery with which Bonhoeffer approached his execution. His death was a natural and inevitable part of his life. His best-known book, The Cost of Discipleship, warns against cheap grace and an easy life for those who see themselves as followers of Christ. His years of active protest against evil and his brief death are all of a piece. He's a heroic figure of integrity. There's a pathos to the timing of his death just a couple of weeks before that particular concentration camp fell into the Allies' hands. For Bonhoeffer, death was a key part of this man's life. He was willing to suffer for what he believed. But his martyrdom is rightly seen not only as about the day of his execution, but the dozen years of costly protest. He's remembered for his writing, his speeches, his acts of defiance and for paying the price with his death. We remember an active, moral leader. Bonhoeffer was hardly alone in suffering Nazi execution. Millions of people lost their lives during the Second World War. Many others were hanged. To focus on the means or manner of his execution does not really help us grasp his greatness. A whole range of people suffered similar, saints and sinners alike. Many will have faced their death with similar bravery and dignity. Jesus was not the only young man to end his life on a Roman cross. We do not know much about many of the others. Perhaps some of them would have moved us with their courage and dignity. We might have felt just as much for them in their vulnerability. Jesus does not have a monopoly on the great qualities we see in his death. The crucifixion of Jesus does not get us very far in accounting for his greatness. Now it's time to meet the next member of the evangelist group who wrote about Jesus in the first century in Palestine but have now appeared in the north of England. I was walking down the Bailey on Durham Peninsula when a bearded middle-aged man wearing a tweed jacket coming out of the university history department bumped into me. Can't you please look where you're going? Ah, Professor Luke, isn't it? Yes, I'm a distinguished Marxist historian, famous for writing the best account of Jesus' life. And, of course, for your modesty, Professor Luke. Famous for my orderly account written for Theophilus 
and for the way I showed Jesus' insight into power and poverty. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm on my way to a champagne reception at Durham University Socialist Society. You're a busy historian, but it's your geography we've got to talk about. You asked me to look where I'm going, and I can't resist asking you, Luke, where the Jesus of your gospel was going. You tell us in chapter 9, 51, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and then it's all about his journeys to the cross. But I can't help asking you, how does that help the poor? How does getting killed in the big city improve the lives of the poor people he cared about all over the country? Didn't you worry just a little bit you were turning Jesus' mission to the poor into a death cult? At this point, Professor Luke snorts, frowns at me, and then marches off up the bailey. I get the impression that Lucas perhaps had enough of Church Ahead for today. I promised you three great men who died young today. and Luke is not one of them. It looks to me as though he's living quite well in middle age. So the other 30-something great Christian leader who also met a violent end before his 40th birthday was Martin Luther King Jr. Luther King admired Bonhoeffer. Again, there are parallels with the ending of Jesus' life. Like Bonhoeffer, King was a church pastor whose work was not confined to the ecclesiastical arena. King's civil rights campaign upset powerful people in the nation's capital who wanted him silenced. His assassination is not seen as a random act of violence, but reactionary forces reacting against him. MLK and Jesus have a lot in common, but for me, the difference in how these two men are remembered is more intriguing. King is generally remembered in Western culture for his speeches and protests. He's remembered for what he said and what he did, inspirational language and courageous deeds. His important life is not marked primarily for its violent end. The focus is on his life rather than his death. The emphasis is what he did, not what his enemies did to him. So why is Jesus' life remembered primarily for its ending? Is it because he never said or did anything very memorable? I think not. Jesus was a great preacher and teacher and protester. Although not a writer, we have very important words of his on record. We have witnesses to important symbolic protests. These are the words and deeds that Martin Luther King would himself have taken inspiration from. The first problem with concentrating on Jesus' death that I see is that Jesus becomes a passive victim rather than an active leader. He is passive. The scope for showing his true character is limited to the way he responds to the actions of others. The main actors in the story are Pilate, Caiaphas and Roman soldiers. Wash your hands, pass the buck, get the job done, respectively. What can he do? What are his options? Rise to the left or rise to the right? Yes, he can endure and forgive, but he can't do very much on a cross. 
Great men show their greatness in what they say and do, not in what others do to them. Greatness is active rather than passive. Inevitably, Jesus' role in his execution is passive. We're unable to see his greatness as a man of action, as a strong and active leader. We can't see him confronting powerful people with brilliant speeches and publicity stunts. We can't imagine the kindness in his face as he touched the sick, or his mischievous hospitality for sinners. We can't see him battling with demons or feeding the hungry. Our view is very limited if it's confined to what he did on the cross. As we look at Martin Luther King, we see a great man who lived a great life. We're aware of his death, but it's not the main thing. We don't obsess about how he responded to his assassin. We don't fetishise the bullet. If the world at large showed more interest in King's death than his life, then his supporters would interpret this as an effort to demean him. If the American Civil Rights Movement portrayed Martin Luther King primarily as a gunman's victim, that would indicate problems within the movement itself. It would suggest a backward-looking, introverted movement with a victim mindset, rather than a dynamic group of people doing great things with a future. If a bullet were their symbol, they would be in trouble. We can feel sorry for Jesus. We can admire his courage. But what else can we do? There aren't many responses we can make. If Christianity is about following Jesus, and this is the most important thing about him, then Christians will not have a very wide range of religious experience available to them. If Christianity is in some sense a personal relationship with Jesus, then we're restricted in the range of our emotional response in that relationship. Our palette of emotions we can offer him is pretty meagre. His death can stir up a limited range of response compared to the much richer range of emotions provoked by his life. 21st century Europeans are not exactly queuing up to follow Jesus. And could this be because they just can't see very much of Jesus in the story church tells about him? The church has shaped the story of Jesus. To a considerable extent, the public only see what we in the church show them. Jesus, the powerful and inspirational leader, is largely missing. The Jesus put on show is the victim of execution. This makes it very hard for people to see his greatness. Insofar as they can bear to look at this thing at all, they can feel sorry for him, but they're unable to experience the magnetic pull of his greatness. Obsession with crucifixion obscures Jesus. His greatness is harder to grasp. His teaching is harder to hear. His character more difficult to engage with. It's harder to fall in love with his beauty. The Gospel writers gave half their material to the end of Jesus' life. Medieval Christianity compounded this imbalance, focusing perhaps 80% of their Gospel on the last few days of his life. 
and 21st century Christians show little sign of bringing these accounts back into balance. Meanwhile, Jesus is slipping away, further out of sight, and fewer people care who he is or what he did. And if their only view of Jesus is what our death cult shows them, well, who can blame them? Thank you for listening to episode 45. We're more than halfway through this Lent series. Please join us next week for the penultimate episode, What Does the Cross Do for God? Thank you.